2: capital. This is Bloomberg Sound Off.
3: Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities.
2: They want to deconstruct this package and cherry-pick
4: what they like and what they don't like.
2: China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg sound on the insiders the influencers the insights
5: Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country
3: who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors
5: infrastructure has
2: always been bipartisan Bloomberg sound on, on Bloomberg radio
6: talks between President Joe Biden and Senator Shelley Moore Capito over infrastructure have ended. Eyes on Capitol Hill now turn to a bipartisan group of senators to see if they can pick up the slack and come to an agreement. And should college as- athletes be paid. It's an old question, but some states are coming up with new answers. We're going to speak in just a minute to Senator Marshall Blackburn on both of those developments. I'm Emily Wilkins, your host for today. We're going to get to the news in just a minute, but first... Let's get a market update with Charlie. Hi, thank
2: you very much. Here's what you need to know. Mixed day
4: on Wall Street. The Dow lower by 30 down one tenth of one percent. S&P up barely finishing close to a record up by half a point today. Nasdaq up 43 up by three tenths.
2: Ten year yield one point five three percent. Gold uh, up today at uh, 1892 the ounce. West Texas Intermediate crude closing above seventy dollars a barrel. Seventy oh five. I'm Charlie Pellett that Emily is a Bloomberg Business Flash.
6: Charlie, thank you so much. This again is Emily Wilkins. I'm here with Bloomberg politics contributor Jeannie Sean Zeno. And also joining us on the line right now is Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee. And Senator, I know in just a minute we're going to get into the important hearing tomorrow on athlete pay, but we got to start off with the big news right now uh, that the infrastructure discussions between President Biden and your colleague, Senator, Senator Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, have come to a conclusion. Uh, we're hearing at this point President Biden saying that he felt like Capito uh, did negotiate in good faith. Uh, At this point we are sort of looking at another bipartisan group of of senators who are working on an infrastructure package that includes Republican Mitt Romney and Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema. Uh, According to uh, Senator Romney some members of this group have determined how much the bill would spend how to pay for it. Senator, how likely is it that this group is gonna come up with a solution and that something bipartisan with infrastructure can still be in the works?
5: Well, it is disappointing to hear President Biden say that he does not believe Senator Capito was negotiating in good faith. She was negotiating in very good faith and continued to go back with other options and with ways to pay for it. Now, I think what we see is that that President Biden is approaching this as he wants what he wants. We saw the same thing with the American recovery plan. And even though he says and gives lip service to the fact that he is going to work in a bipartisan manner, at the end of the day, that is... Not what is happening. That is disappointing because do the American people want to see a bill that is focused strictly on traditional infrastructure of roads and bridges and highways and airports and ports and broadband? Yes, they do. Are they frustrated that Washington cannot seem to come to that agreement? Yes, they are. And maybe the president needs to let the House and Senate do their work. And not try to evolve the definition of infrastructure to mean child care, elder care, uh, beefing up support for unions, and these different components that had absolutely nothing to do with infrastructure.
6: Right. And and Senator, I did just want to take a minute to clarify, uh, you know, President Biden, he did say that Capito was negotiating in good faith. We're also seeing now a statement from Senator Capito saying that, you know, President Biden broke off the talks and that she is disappointed. Uh, But uh, Senator Capito also said that, you know, Biden uh, suggested that the the negotiations were all in good faith and that significant progress was made. Well, good.
5: I I misunderstood you. I thought you were saying that he said she did not negotiate this is this is the
6: joy of senator we're gonna have to get you in the studio (laughs) at some point so we can just do face to face back to how it used to be but you know i do want to ask because president biden you know he pitched himself on the campaign trail as someone who could get things done who could work together in a bipartisan manner and i'm wondering why you sort of think because you were with him i think for for a bit of time Uh, in in the Senate, or at least you're you're aware of his time as a senator, why is he suddenly not able to get things done and to work across the aisle the way that he said that he would when he was on the campaign trail and the way he did when he was in the Senate?
5: Well, and that really was on full display with the American Recovery Act when it was to give them everything that they were asking for. And what we wanted to do was repurpose $1 trillion that was already in the pipeline that had not been spent. What we have to look at is the amount of debt that they are piling onto our nation's debt. And they are coming at this with about a trillion dollars a month. That is too expensive for our children and our grandchildren to afford because at some point that note is going to come due. So this is why I oppose just continuing to say print more money spend 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 and why it is so important that we realize we are stewards of the taxpayer money and as we look at meeting our nation's needs of course we need to be mindful of that and this is why the american people are saying look roads bridges highways interstates broadband These are things that everyone agrees on need to be addressed. So let's leave other things for discussions a different day, a different piece of legislation, but a surface transportation bill, a highway bill, a bill that deals with interstates and airports and ports, our waterways. um, These are the things that we as a nation have always put it into
3: an infrastructure bill. Uh, so, Senator, we know that, that the administration, Joe Biden, came down quite a bit to one trillion dollars in, in the last offer. And Republicans did come up to about 250, 300 billion in new spending. In your mind, because we all know that the American public wants and needs infrastructure spending, however it's defined, where do you want to see this go from now, now, given that these talks have collapsed between Capitol and Biden? What are you thinking? that Republicans are willing to offer, any more than two fifty three hundred billion Last year,
5: our infrastructure proposal that we in the Senate had agreed on was about $350 billion. And now that the American public is paying so much attention to this issue, I have to tell you, I think that we would be well-served to say, this is what we would spend for bridge repairs, this is what we could spend for highways, this is what we can spend on our nation's interstate, this is money that needs to go to airports and maybe be even a little bit more definitive and specific and what the dollars would be, what the utilization would be, and not get into all of these other issues, as I said previously, that really do not deal with traditional infrastructure. Because people want to make certain that the roads and the highways and the bridges that they're driving on and that they're crossing are going to be safe. This is a part of public safety, and we should be focused on those components. And this bill that would put a lot of money into increasing union membership, that would put money into... Uh, electric vehicles that's not what the American public wants to see right now they want roads resurfaced they want bridges repaired they want airports improved they want broadband expanded and that should be our focus
6: Got it. and so it really sounds like sort of this senator is what, what you and your Republican colleagues have been saying all along that it just needs to be straight infrastructure traditional infrastructure kind of what's been defined as infrastructure in the past. Well, I want to actually now go ahead and uh, switch to the topic of tomorrow's hearing on college college athletes who rake in big profits. I want to bring in Randy Boyd, president of the University of Tennessee. Senator, you know, have both of you be a part of this conversation here. You know, right now under NCAA rules, they prohibit players from making a profit, but states are beginning to push back against this. Tennessee became the 15th state to pass a law allowing college players to profit off of their name, image, and likeness. And, Senator, I actually want to see if you can elaborate for a minute. Why focus on these three things, name, image, and likeness? Why also not account for all the things like ticket sales for these big games?
5: One of the things that we do know is so many of these young athletes, uh, their parents have built YouTube channels of their videos and what we do know is that these students own their name their image and any replication of their likeness now we have a lot of social media influencers that are out there that are in the uh the youth population and what we have to realize is that as colleges are going to recruit some of these outstanding young athletes and athletic scholars that we need to have a way for them to continue their online presence and find a way through uh, some form of mechanism where that they can continue to have those channels TO BENEFIT, NOT MAYBE BENEFITING TODAY, BUT MAYBE BENEFITING WHEN THEY FINISH THEIR COLLEGE CAREER. AND THIS IS SOMETHING THAT, YES, THE STATES ARE TAKING UP, BECAUSE THE NCAA AND uh, THEIR LEADERSHIP TEAM AT THE NCAA, THE the COMMITTEES THAT FORM THAT BODY HAVE NOT BEEN ABLE TO to come up with guidelines and rules under which these athletes would work. And so, therefore, Congress has had to take up the issue. And those of us at the Senate Commerce Committee, and I'm the ranking Republican on the Consumer Protection Data Security Committee, where this issue comes, we're having to take up this issue because – The NCAA cannot seem to wrap their head around this and come to a set of guidelines, rules, regulations of how this would affect our young
6: athletes. Well, Senator, I, I know that you've sometimes had had strong words for NCAA President Mark Emmert before. We'll definitely be watching for that at that hearing tomorrow. Um, but University of Tennessee President Randy Boyd, I want to turn to you for a minute. Obviously, you know you're someone who has a lot of interactions with students, thinking about the students. I was looking over the witness list for this hearing tomorrow. And there are some big names who are probably very smart individuals, but there are no students. And I'm wondering if you have any concerns about a hearing being held about college athletes being paid for their name, image, and likeness without any college athletes being able to talk to senators themselves.
0: Well, good good afternoon, Emily, and uh, also good afternoon, Senator Blackburn. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, Absolutely. I think the students definitely should be represented about party to uh, all the agenda of the, of the hearings, but I think it would always be good to have the student voice anytime you're discussing uh, student issues. We do that at the university uh, in, in every case. I would like to add, you know, this, this is a, a very complicated issue. Um, there's at least uh, three major concerns that, 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 that we're, we're looking at. One is, just the, the, as was highlighted, the lack of consistent uh, rules. In the SEC, for example, we have six states that have different laws that they've just passed, with so different standards in each state, then the NCA may uh, be also setting standards along with the federal government. So it's uh, very difficult to navigate um, policies uh, with so many different uh, potential uh, rules. But the most important thing for us in higher education at the University of Tennessee is to focus on our students. And the one thing we can do is help prepare our students to take advantage of whatever may come uh, before. UT Knoxville has uh, created a new entrepreneur class. Uh, which uh, is actually a, uh, a course on name and likeness where we're going to be teaching brand basics, business formation, entrepreneurship, legal implications, and the financial uh, literacy. But the, the last thing I just want to mention is there's going to be some winners and losers. You know, the, one of the things that I think is somewhat misunderstood is how many students will benefit. You know, in the NFL, only roughly 12% of the NFL players actually make money on name image, and likeness. So I think there's a misunderstanding that lots of athletes will make money. It'll be a fairly small amount. And then the other thing that we're really concerned with is in the University of Tennessee system, we have uh, three different universities and three different conferences. And as you probably know, it's over 300 uh, D1 uh, universities in the country, and only about 12 of them actually make money. Uh, so we're really worried about adding extra burden on compliance for some of the smaller schools. If they add all these additional staff to meet compliance issues, they'll probably there's a possibility. That they may have to start cutting programs. So I think the, uh, the idea that all colleges are making money on athletics is, is something that needs to be debunked that it's a very, very small small few of them.
6: I also realize that you know even though Tennessee's law is passed, it hasn't gone into effect yet. It's going into effect on July 1st. And I'm wondering, you know if no federal bill like Tennessee's, passes before July 1st, then schools and states like Tennessee who have passed this legislation, they could have a significant recruiting advantage. And I'm I'm wondering, President Boyd, is being able to recruit better players one of the benefits of Tennessee passing this legislation that would help compensate athletes in some capacity?
0: This is a great question. So actually our law has been passed, but it doesn't take effect until January 1 of 2022. However, some of the other states in which some of our teams compete against uh, their law uh, did, does take effect July one, so it's going to be very interesting to see how the states and the teams and the universities interpret their their laws. Ours uh, specifically uh, says that we are not to use uh, this as a way to recruit athletes, um, and so it's going to be uh, a, a very interesting uh, uh, next year as universities, by in most cases by law, are not allowed to use it to recruit athletes, and yet athletes are aware of of the opportunities in in
1: different states.
6: Well, Senator Marsha Blackburn and President of the University of Tennessee, Randy Boyd, thank you both for taking the time and chatting with us for today. Really great insights there, both on infrastructure as well as what to expect moving forward with the NCAA and with student-athlete pay. Once again, this is Emily Wilkins, your host today, here with our ACE Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano. Uh, Jeannie, we definitely covered a, a lot with that last couple minutes, uh, both from the senator and from the the university president. I'm wondering, and particularly go, going back to infrastructure here for a minute, because that really is the big breaking news from today. Did anything that the senators say really surprise you at this point? Or is it It seemed kind of like the, the position that Republicans have, have really staked out through this entire negotiating process?
3: I agree with you. I mean, it is big news. I actually thought these negotiations may go longer. Um, I, I was surprised when we just heard, as you announced a few minutes ago, that the negotiations had broken off between Senator Capito and the president. Um, You know, I I think that listening to Senator Blackburn, uh, I, I think the news there is that, to your point, very little has changed. She went back and said, we need to focus, as you talked about, on what we have long traditionally described as infrastructure. We're willing to spend X amount of money. We're willing to think about how to pay for that. But we're unwilling to move in this way that Democrats and the president have pushed for to broaden that definition. And I think if Republicans and Democrats can't come to some consensus on that definition. We will end up with the Democrats pushing forward on a bill. And as you know, covering Congress every minute of the day as you do in the House, they have already started doing that this week. And they're going to continue. And I think we will see something pushed through on reconciliation.
6: Excellent. I also want to bring into the conversation Matt Bennett. He's a co-founder for Third Way, a Democratic strategist, and a former Clinton White House deputy assistant. Matt, welcome to the show. Glad to have you with us. Uh, I know we're just sort of throwing you into things here, but you know, the talks between President Biden and uh, Senator Cavado have broken down, but there is still this bipartisan group of senators, including Senator Mitt Romney, uh, Democrat Senator Kristen Sinema, who have been tra- working together, trying to come up with a plan plan b in case plan a fails which it has it now has uh, matt i'm wondering do you see a lot of progress being, being able to made in this group or is this sort of a, a last last ditch effort before democrats say we're just going to have to go it alone
4: well uh if it's not the last ditch it may be the second to last um the, there has been little progress and i think the end of the talks with, with senator Capito. Uh, aren't a good sign if you're somebody who is hoping for a bipartisan bill. Yes, there's this thing, this group they call themselves the G20. That's a lot of people to negotiate with. And beyond two or three uh, Senate Republicans who seem very interested in, you know, making the concessions that they would need to make in order to get a deal with the Democrats, uh, there aren't a lot. Uh, Romney is certainly among the two or three, along with Collins and Murkowski. But then you're getting to people like Pat Toomey, a senator from Pennsylvania, who before he was in the Senate was the president of the Club for Growth. They're the most radical uh, anti-spending, anti-tax group really in politics. So things get pretty
5: tough.
6: Absolutely. The, the more the more individuals involved, I, I think that's such a valid point that you see time and time again in in D.C. The more people who are in a room together, the, the less it is to come up with something that gets everyone happy. I, I mean, there's another interesting implication too here for President Biden. Um, early today, we heard White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, you know, talk a little bit about how the plan was playing out. This was before the White House announced that they were ending talks. With Senator Capito, but but it was definitely you know only a couple hours before that news was broken. Here's here's what here's the sound on what Saki had to say.
5: The president has a benefit of 36 years in the Senate, where he has seen that the sausage making is messy. It takes time. There are ups and downs in the roller coaster. We're right in the middle of the sausage making right now.
6: I mean, knowing that this was said this afternoon before the news came out about the talks ending, uh, Jeannie, I- I'm curious what you make of that se- sentence. We're right in the middle of the sausage making right now. I mean, I suppose we're at the end of this one series of negotiations, potentially going on to another, certainly have, have a lot ahead of us. I mean, for President Biden right now, what what is he thinking there? in the White House. He pitched himself as this guy who could come to a bipartisan compromise. It's, he's now walking away from, from a Republican that he's been negotiating with for several weeks, empty handed. What's going to be the outcome here for the president? You
3: know, I go back to the fact that President Biden is somebody, if you had to draw a figure or create a character who could make this work under these very difficult conditions, it would be President Biden. He spent his almost entire adult life in Congress and much of it in the Senate. He knows Washington better than anybody. I find it as an American and a political scientist, a very difficult pill to swallow that if he can't do it, who can and and that I think is something we all have to think about because you know, he is heading off to Europe tomorrow to try to make the case that democracy still works, that we can get things done. He is heading there under these conditions. And I think it's a very difficult case to make at this point. So I feel for the president in this moment, maybe he still has negotiations up his sleeve, maybe the G20 as as you and Matt were just talking about can make something work, but I'm not sure it's gonna happen.
6: Matt, I'm going to throw you the question that we throw. I've basically started to throw everyone on this show. As far as the deadline is concerned for when Democrats need to make a decision on whether they're just going to go at it alone, when does that need to be? Because you know and I know that it's going to be pretty difficult to get moderate and progressive Democrats in agreement on a major package that includes things like raising taxes.
4: It is, and I think the deadline is approaching quickly because – uh, this has to be done before the end of the fiscal year, which is the end of September, which seems to normal humans like it's far away, but not to senators, because uh, they don't work as much as normal people. Uh, they, they'll be gone for much of the summer. They're gone for you know, some of every week. And what has to be done, if they're going to go it alone, is they have to pass it on budget reconciliation. That requires the work of many different Senate committees to thread a very small needle uh, to get this stuff through the parliamentarian's review, because there's very, very tough rules around what can be in a reconciliation package and what can't. That's leaving aside the thing you pointed to, which is the negotiation that will have to go on intra-party between Democrats on the far left and in the, the center-left. Uh, and then they got to deal with the House, because obviously whatever the Senate passes has to be passed by the House as well, and Democrats have only a three-vote margin there if the... Uh, if one side or the other doesn't like it and refuses to attack the bill, uh, then it will die in the House, which is unlikely but conceivable. So a lot to do, not much time to do it
6: absolutely no matt that's such a good point because remember we saw with that 1.9 trillion dollar COVID stimulus package there were actually some provisions in there for very specific transportation projects that got booted out by the parliamentarian because she said this does not apply this is not actually what the bill is supposed to be about so i think that that's a really good point that you have to continue to watch that even as you look at the debates between Democrats, you have to consider what can go through with the parliamentarian. Well, coming up, we're going to be talking a little bit more about Vice President Kamala Harris's trip to Guatemala and her discussions about what's going on at the border. And look at a new survey talking about what went wrong for Democrats for the 2022 elections. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg.
2: Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 11.3.0 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960 to the country, Sirius XM channel 119 and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and Bloomberg This is Bloomberg Sound On.
6: I'm Emily Wilkins. Coming up, we delve into Vice President Kamala Harris's trip down to the Northern Triangle, what she said yesterday in Guatemala, how it is being received, and the continuing pressure on the White House to deal with an increase of immigrants crossing through the southern border. Also, we'll be taking a look at an in-depth survey on what Democrats think went wrong when they lost a number of House seats in the 2020 elections, despite gaining the White House. I'm Emily Wilkins, here today with Bloomberg Politics. Child politics contributor, Jimmy Sean Zeno, and Matt Bennett, co-founder of Third Way, a Democratic strategist and former White House deputy assistant. Glad to have you both with us. I want to get in today. We've talked a little bit about what President Biden's been up to in regards to infrastructure talks. Now going to go to Vice President Kamala Harris. She's in the Northern Triangle this week, and she's talking to leaders there about strengthening their economies and giving their citizens better lives. She's also been addressing the root causes of immigration and trying to stem the tide of immigrants at the U.S. southern border. While in Mexico today, Vice President Harris fielded a reporter's question, not the first one this week, about why she has yet to actually visit the southern border as vice president. Here's Harris's response and the sound on that. I've been to the border before, I will go again. But when I'm
3: in Guatemala, (laughs) dealing with root causes, I think we should have a conversation about what's going on in
6: Guatemala. Uh, Matt, I'm going to come to you with with this question because I'm interested in your perspective. I mean, uh, Vice President Harris is really getting grilled hard for not going to the southern border. At the other hand, you know, President Biden told her that she was the one that he wanted to sort of be on top of investigating what's going on, looking into it, coming up with various solutions. I mean, should she be in Guatemala right now? Would it have been more productive for her to actually go to the southern border and take a look at what's happening? there
4: uh, no she's doing exactly what the president asked her to do you know i my first job in the clinton white house was uh, working and traveling with vice president gore and went all over the world with him and and when you're vice president you go where you are asked to go by the president the president is your boss and what the president asked vice president harris to do is, as she noted work on the the root cause of the migration from central america People coming from places like Guatemala, and very dangerous journey through Mexico uh, to to make it to the United States, and they're coming because they're living lives that are that are basically unlivable. The the, the, gang, the crime and gang violence is off the charts. The uh, unemployment is huge. Uh, disease and sickness is rampant. So, she is working with the Guatemalans in an effort to make those those conditions to ease those conditions so that we don't see these huge migration flows coming up through mexico that's a completely different job than border security and border security is not a job she was asked to do so she's doing the job she was given
6: Paris also had a a message for guatemalans this week and she was very blunt about this she said do not come do not come. I believe if you come to our border, you will be turned back. I mean, that is a pretty stark message. She's come under criticism from some in her own party, including a progressive Congress member, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who said that Harris's comments were disappointing to see that seeking asylum at any U.S. border is a 100% legal method of arrival and saying that the blaming the U.S., for its role uh, in spending decades contributing to regime change and destabilization. Uh, I'm wondering, Matt, is there, uh, how should Harris go about sort of striking the tone? I mean, I know that there is a concern about immigrants sort of making this long journey to the US if they're not going to be qualified. Um, At the same point, you definitely see some within her own party saying, you know what, if these people are in rough situations, we should be allowing them to come into the country.
4: Look, uh, I think it, anyone who, who looks at the stories of these migrants um, feels for them. It, it, they're living in, in really in unbelievably difficult conditions, and anyone could understand why they would seek to make their lives better this way. But I think that the vice president got it right. Um, we, we cannot accept uh, everyone from around the world who is living in really difficult conditions uh, our country simply can't do that. No country can do that. And um, we don't, we we have to discourage these folks from making this unbelievably dangerous journey where um, people have been murdered and uh, sexually assaulted and robbed and kidnapped and, and put into um, sexual slavery. I mean, there's all sorts of horrible things that are happening in this journey. And so she's right about that. I I understand why Congresswoman ocasio cortez said what she did, but I think as a matter of public policy, the vice president is correct to say that uh, that we should be discouraging people from making this trip. Um,
3: Matt, let me just ask you, in a very brief time, like 30 seconds, if— If you were asked by the administration what they should do, what advice you would have for them in terms of the border, what would you give them? I hear you. What would you say? I hear you said that you don't think it's important that she visit the border, but they are being attacked on both sides on this. What do you think they should do or what would you advise at this point?
4: Well, I don't know if it's a great question. I don't know if it's the job of, of the vice president to go to the border and do something. But I do think that the Biden administration should be Uh, making clear to the public that they are taking border security very seriously. And uh, they're not doing um, performative nonsense like building a wall that doesn't work and is incredibly expensive and destroying the ecology and is preposterous. What they would be doing instead is using electronic means and and border uh, patrols to ensure that we have control of the border, that the people who are coming through are treated humanely and properly, but that they're not sneaking across the border. And there's a, a plenty of ways that we can do that with modern technology, with drones, and electronic fencing, and all kinds of things uh, that I think the public could see we're, we're taking steps that are, that are real.
6: Absolutely. We're going to leave it there for now. But when we come back, we're going to have a discussion about the latest from Colonial Pipeline CEO, what he told a congressional panel today, and a deep dive into Democrats and the 2020 elections. That's coming up next. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is Bloomberg Sound On, on Bloomberg Radio.
6: I'm Emily Wilkins, here today with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sean Zeno and joined by Matt Bennett, co-founder of Third Way, the Democratic strategist and former Clinton White House deputy assistant. Well, today we heard from the chief executive of a pipeline company hit by a ransomware attack in the last month, Apologizing to the U.S. Senate panel for the incident that paralyzed the East Coast flow of gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel, Colonial Pipeline Co. Chief Executive Offer Joseph Blount said paying the ransom in order to have the company's IT systems unlocked was, quote, the hardest decision I've made in my 39 years in the energy industry. Here's the sound on what he told the committee today.
4: It was the hardest decision I have made in my 39 years in the energy industry, and I know how critical our pipeline is to the country, and I put the interests of the country first. I kept the information closely held because we were concerned about operational safety and security, and we wanted to stay focused on getting the pipeline back up and running. I believe with all my heart, it was the right choice to make.
6: The right choice to make, but a choice that has been very criticized among various members of Congress and lawmakers worried that by seeing one company go ahead and pay the ransom, it will encourage companies to hack other companies. Jeannie Sean Zeno, talk to me a little bit about exactly how this kind of testimony is going to wind up playing out in Congress and their wider decisions to potentially take action or, or try and pass legislation that would help prevent some of these ransomware attacks from happening on other major corporations.
3: I'm so glad you played that clip. I found his testimony today incredibly moving. It really took you behind the scenes and put us in the position of he he was in in and those in the inside of the company were in as they were under this attack and as he said, knew how critical the work they were doing is to the country. And so I I think it, it will be helpful and hopefully Congress sees their way to taking steps. You know, If people are critical of companies paying ransomware, then we need to consider outlawing that. We need to consider regulating crypto. We need to consider all the steps, you know, we have the president going overseas. Next week, he will be meeting with uh, President Putin. Those issues need to be addressed. So I think it's important. And one thing we should really praise Colonial for is keeping the U.S. government informed. And, of course, the FBI yesterday, the big news, getting a good portion of that ransom back. Obviously, that's not always going to happen. But it was an important step that, you know, really brings this issue to the forefront.
6: Yeah, definitely something that we're going to expect to be hearing a a lot more from from Congress as they sort through this, these issues, um, hopefully not so much more news from companies being hacked. But you know, as we saw from JBS last week, um, that's certainly something that that we are continuing to see at this point. Well, speaking of deep dives, I want to pivot now to a one of the most comprehensive views that have reviews that have been done so far of the 2020 elections this was done by three major democratic groups and the new york times said that this new report is perhaps the most soul-searching done by either party this year you know you think back to the 2020 elections you think president trump lost president biden won democrats had a good night but you know as someone who really followed these elections pretty closely democrats were expecting to pick up way more seats in the senate uh, the day before the elections, you heard Speaker Nancy Pelosi talking about how Democrats were going to pick up seats in the House. Well, Democrats lost seats in the House, and, and you know not, not one or two seats, but I think we were up to about a dozen. And at the same point, there were a number of Senate races that Democrats were very confident about. I'm thinking Susan Collin in Maine, Tom Tillis in North Carolina, and those Republican incumbents wound up winning again. Matt, you are with Third Way. They are one of the interest groups that did this deep dive report. I just wanted to start off by seeing what your big takeaways were for you after doing all of this research and all of these interviews. What really stuck out to you at the end that that maybe you didn't realize on election night or in the week or so after?
4: Yeah, I think uh, there were a couple of things that were very surprising to us. Third Way uh, was a lead, Sponsored this along with the Collective Pack and Latino Victory, both uh, focused on voters of color. And um, what we found, as the Times reported, was two big things. The first is that Democrats need to start thinking about voters of color, which is to say, of course, uh, African American voters, uh, Latinos, and uh, Asian Pacific Islanders. We got to start thinking about them as persuasion voters, which is to say, we need to communicate to them in ways that will persuade them to support Democrats and not simply take them for granted. You know, 38 percent of Latinos supported Trump. uh, 18 percent of black men did. uh, And and in many cases in these House races that we looked at, uh, there was a surge of turnout among uh, Latino communities. And they voted for Republicans, uh, which was not what most people would have assumed would happen if there was a big surge of Latino turnout. So I think that that's number one. Number two is. Uh, we have to take seriously the, the kind of short, the lies that Republicans are telling about Democrats that tie moderate Democrats to very far left ideas like socialism and defund the police. Those things took a real toll, especially on some of the more junior, you know, freshman members of Congress. Uh, we lost 12 of them uh, in 2020. Uh, we expected they would all win and we would pick up seats. So it was a, a real disappointment. notwithstanding was the fact that we still have the House majority.
6: I, you know, Matt, I am really interested in that because I knew that for a number of these moderate lawmakers that, that you're talking about, you know, they did come out and say, I don't support defunding the police. They came out and really mm-hmm. tried to push back against some of the messages, but it didn't seem like actually just, just coming out and saying, no, that's not what I believe did the trick. I mean, is there anything that you discovered that you think could be an effective message for Democrats? Because we already know that Republicans are going to use and frankly, are already using some of those same tactics, trying to tile Democrats as socialists, tile Democrats as wanting to defund the police. What's an effective message for Democrats to push back against that?
4: Well, you're exactly right. It's happening again. They're doing precisely the same thing. And why not? I mean, it worked for them in 2020. Of course, they're going to try it again in 2022. Um, What we found in the retrospective that we did is candidates that really went out early in the electoral cycle. Remember House folks are up every two years. So people that, uh, you know, go up on the air uh, or in digital media or whatever they're using early, which is to say kind of next spring and summer rather than waiting for the fall, and talk to their voters about who they are. They do what in politics we call bio spots. They deepen their brand identity uh, in the parlance of business. Um, If they do that effectively and over and over and over, that can help Blunt the effect of these attacks. You know, the, the fund the police stuff didn't come until late summer. Remember, the, the, the summer of rage after the murder of George Floyd happened, and then activists started talking about defunding the police, and then some in our party did, and then it got attached to other Democrats. So it can come at the end. And the candidates that had good brand identity with their voters were able to fend that off, and the ones who didn't have that had a harder time. So uh, my organization has started a new group called Shield Pack. We just did a new Video that's out today at shieldpack.org that is designed to help these candidates do that to, to deepen their their bios earlier in the cycle.
3: Matt, one of my uh, sort of um, favorite, and I'm putting that in quotes, of these post-mortems on the Republican side was the one that they did famously after the 2008 loss to Obama. And that talked a lot about changing demographics, the need to reach out to Latinos. And, and we know what happened two elections later, they got stuck with Donald Trump. So what is the reception you're getting from the Democratic Party, both the at the upper levels of the Democratic Party, but more importantly, at the base. And how hopeful are you that this will translate in 2022, 2024, to some of the changes that you're recommending?
4: Well, one of the reasons that we decided to do this with Collective Pack and Latino Victory, and, and we reached out uh, throughout the process to congressional Black and Hispanic and uh, Asian American caucuses, and to the new Democrats who are the moderates, and even to the progressive caucus on the left, is we wanted as to get as broad a uh, buy-in as possible to the findings of this study. And uh, so far, so good on that. There've been a few uh, folks pushing back a little bit, but for the most part, I think most Democrats, including the folks at the DNC and the, and the party committees, have been very receptive to these findings. What we are hoping is that um, there's a few recommendations that are kind of buried in here. This was really a retrospective. It was a, pre- it was a, a description, not a prescription, but you can easily see what needs to be done Among them, uh, as I said earlier, treating voters of color as persuasion voters and and going straight at these uh, charges that that moderates uh, candidates in swing districts are actually secret radicals, which is nonsense, but that has to be taken head on and going up early and making sure people know who you are. I think there's a pretty broad buy in on all of that.
6: Matt, I'm a little curious, too, because in the last election, you saw um, Republicans try and tie Democrats to sort of the most progressive members of their party, the far left, if you will, and now Republicans have members on the far right who are just, you know, much further to the right than a lot of the members who were there before. And Democrats have talked about how they want to sort of tie all Republicans to those members. I mean, is there a way that we're going to sort of see a bit of tit for tat here in the 2022 election?
4: Oh, without a doubt. And, and look, um, remember, all of the electoral stuff in 2020 happened prior to January 6th. And uh, January 6th was a seminal moment in our politics. You're going to hear a lot about how radical the Republicans have become next cycle.
6: Absolutely. Well, we will be continuing to follow that. But that is now it for today's show. Huge thanks to Jeannie Sean Zeno and Matt Bennett for joining me today, talking about the breaking news on infrastructure. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg.